Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. So this is the topic on which I was asked to speak, and it's a really good topic. Can we be good without God? Of course, I'm going to approach it by way of the theology and thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, and also using some of his methodology that is clarifying and making distinctions, right? This question Can we be good? And what is meant by without God? There's two reasons why I think people might be interested in this question, right? They might be interested in how do we grow in goodness? I want to be good. I'm interested in generically learning about goodness. Also, I find people are interested about the question of goodness flourishing in a non-religious context, right? We hear all these things about God being good and us needing Christianity to live good and holy lives, which leaves people to the question of, well, but I think I see things that are good in my non-Christian friends or my non-religious friends, and how do I understand that goodness? So I'm hoping this talk will help to answer both of those questions, help us to understand goodness more generally, and also to speak to this question of goodness in a non-religious context. Okay, so on the next slide, I've pictured just a little bit this second reason why someone might be interested in this question. We see here a free stock image of our imaginary neighbor, Bob, the friendly skeptic. Bob here is a good neighbor. He pays his taxes. He helped you find your lost cat when you lost your cat. He's patient with his little son who's struggling with math. You see good qualities in Bob and even some good things that he does, but Bob is just not interested in God at all, right? He's not seeking the supernatural help of God. He doesn't pray. He doesn't really even think about the afterlife, but he seems to be a good person. You've all known some people like this. They don't believe in God, but they achieve noble goals which require a certain strength of character. Is what they are doing really not good? Is it fake goodness? How does a Christian understand this? Does a Christian need to pretend that Bob is not really good? What would Aquinas say that we're seeing when we encounter Bob? I apologize if anyone in this room is named Bob. Um, I, I don't have any students with that name this year, so it's a good sort of example name. Also, there is just some sort of weird Canadian liking for this name. Um, a few years ago, when we broke off from the Northwest Territories, we created a new Inuit territory, and the, there was a survey of what to name it, and the, thankfully the name that won was Nunavut, like the the appropriate name, which it is called, but apparently second in the survey was Bob. So it's just sort of a a Canadian fallback name, right? Um, 
All right, so that's what that's what's going on with that, right? So I've got this perspective. Then I have this other perspective that we sometimes seem to hear. This is a stock image of the prophet Isaiah, and I've got a quote from Isaiah here, right? A very intense quote railing against this fake, a fake presumption of human goodness, right? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So a very um, intense perspective here, right? Making this intense claim about the lack of human righteousness. Or I could quote Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's this deep radical recognition that there's a need for God's forgiveness and God's help for us to participate in his goodness. I could draw on other quotes, but this slide here just sort of sets the stage for one way of approaching this question. So as I said, I'm going to approach this through making some distinctions in a Thomistic way, and hopefully in a way that will help us approach this question in a way helpful for both reasons, giving insight into goodness and also understanding our experience of goodness in a non-religious context. Now, it's possible, this is true in my classroom at UST, that some of you listening to the talk might not be Christian or religious, so you might have yet another interest, sort of a, a meta interest to understand how Catholics think about goodness in a non-religious setting, non-religious context. So if that's your background as well, I think you'll find this talk interesting. Okay, so I want to start then diving into this question with an answer that a student gave me once. This was in a class on grace that I was teaching, and I asked, actually asked the class this question, can we be good without God? And I had this one student, and this is what he answered. No, sister, why are you even asking this question? Of course not. If God doesn't exist, there is nothing. We wouldn't be here. Nothing would be good. The end. Let's go to the next topic. The student misunderstood the question. I wasn't asking if God doesn't exist, is the world wiped out? We're asking this question from the perspective of existing already and looking at the world. But I do want to say there was something to the answer of this very intense student. In some way, this student based his reply on a profound metaphysical insight. In some way, and we're going to dig into in what way, all goodness is related to God. If you don't have God as first cause, you don't have reality. In some way, all goodness of any kind relies on God's prior being and God's prior action. Without any connection to God, there is no goodness at all. So let's consider Bob the skeptic. Even this Bob, our neighbor, is not totally unrelated to God. To Bob, St. Thomas would probably say, any goodness you have still comes from God's goodness in some way, even if you don't realize it. When Bob found your cat for you, that care for you, or maybe it was actually care for your cat, maybe he likes your cat more than you, had its roots in God's creative action and God's goodness. The idea that all goodness of any kind in some way relies on God's prior goodness should not be a surprise to you. It's a key teaching of St. Thomas. You can find it in his Summa in the Prima Pars questions five and six. It also fits with the scripture passage where Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. Luke 18, 18 to 19. So let's take a minute and ask then, how is created goodness related to God in general? And we will be moving up towards the goodness in human actions, but just starting here. Okay. So for Aquinas, God is the first efficient, exemplar, and final cause of all goodness. 
If you listen to enough Thomistic Institute lectures, you might be like, oh yeah, I know what that means, but I'm gonna unpack these a little bit and then keep them in mind as we move forward into human behavior, right? So the, God is the efficient cause. Efficient doesn't mean like your dishwasher works really well, high efficiency dishwasher. Efficient here comes from the Latin word faccio, meaning making. So the efficient cause is the agent who acts to bring about an effect. So in the case of all goodness, that is not God. God acted to bring about that goodness. However you understand the origination of the universe through the Big Bang or another scientific process, Aquinas will hold that God brought that matter and energy into existence. God got things started and continues to hold them in existence. Creatures are not part of God, so we don't have a pantheistic worldview. The universe is distinct from God, but relies on him for its existence. Now, this does not, of course, negate the role of real secondary causes. People, animals, objects, forces exert real causality in the world. The secondary beings have goodness from God's prior creative action, and they themselves impact other beings contributing to their goodness, or in some cases through their imperfect or flawed actions, contributing to the various forms of privation that we identify as evil. But delving into evil is another talk, right? <laughs> so to sum it up, God has some agency in every goodness. We haven't yet sort of examined how this relates to Bob, but just this recognition, God, at least in bringing the universe into existence and holding it, is related to all goodness. We can also say that God is the exemplary cause of any created goodness, including human moral goodness. An exemplary cause is an example or pattern. In the philosophy of exemplary causality, we see some of Plato's influence on Aquinas. To say that God is the exemplary cause is to say that God's goodness in some way is a model for all created goodness. It all reflects him in some way. In the Bible, we see this celebrated in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth the work of his hands. I grew up on a farm in Canada, so that's, that's one of my favorite biblical passages, sort of because I, I grew up seeing that, right? And that's why I have the image of sort of a, a beautiful sky here on this slide. In a way, the understanding of God as exemplary cause could be called the St. Francis principle. Not Pope Francis, St. Francis. St. Francis is known for seeing God's beauty in all of creation. His canticle of creation echoes Psalm 19 when he sings, Praise be you, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars. In the heavens you formed them, clear and precious and beautiful. Maybe those lines are more poignant to me because in Houston we have so much light pollution, I don't think I ever see the stars. Don't know what it's like out here. The reason God is praised through the sun and the moon and the stars and wind and fire is because he is the exemplary cause. This also applies to the beauty of human moral goodness. It would mean that someone who does any sort of good in some way images or imitates God. So Bob's patience with his son's math homework reflects God the Father, even if Bob doesn't know or believe this. God's kindness in helping you find your cat reflects, and one could even say participates in, God's providential care for you. But you might ask, how could someone who does not know God imitate God, right? How, how is Bob imitating God in his action here? And this is an interesting question. One part of the answer is God's role as creator. Bob is made in God's image and likeness. So when he does things that are naturally good 
or that fit with human nature, he can reflect God, reflecting this image even without knowing God. I think another answer can be that a person who reflects God without knowing God somehow has learned something about God from the created order. He's seen God reflected in a good parent or caught a glimpse of the divine beauty in a noble action or is somehow is imperfectly seeking the divine goodness without fully knowing that he is. This insight ties into the third way here in which God is related to created goodness. This is as final cause. This one is super interesting. You could do a whole lecture on it. We're just gonna look at it briefly, right? A final cause is a goal or purpose for which someone acts. I think the classic example of final cause, right? Why do you make a peanut butter sandwich? Because you're hungry and you want a sandwich, right? To, to bring about the sandwich. So humans are called to know and love God as their final cause. They are called to share in his supernatural life. Okay, the imaginary neighbor Bob is not fully aimed here yet. But in Aquinas' thought, even lower creation has God as its final end. This is super interesting. This is not because I'm saying that plants and rocks receive rational souls and like magically praise God in some sort of future resurrection, right? But because as creation unfolds, it reaches towards reflecting God. So a squash plant, it's um, you know fall, so all the gourds and things are out, right? A gourd or a squash plant, as it matures and grows beautiful squashes and tributes to the ecosystem, reflects God more as an adult flourishing plant than it did as a tiny seed. As it contributes, it helps the order and beauty and harmony of the universe through helping the order and beauty and harmony of that ecosystem or your garden, and it helps the universe say something greater about God. This is very beautiful. So it moves towards God as its final end by naturally unfolding according to the principles of its nature, but as it does so, it reflects God more fully, says something about God, and in that way, God is its final end. In a way, our neighbor Bob, who is doing an action we would recognize as good for the sake of some honorable reason, in a very impartial and imperfect way, is seeking God as his final end by trying to unfold goodness in his life. Okay, so at this point, we have a partial answer. In the life of someone who is doing good, although without anything supernatural, this person has some sort of goodness. God is involved in their goodness, even if they don't know it. A Christian encountering someone like this and seeing the goodness in their life can recognize God's hand in a limited way and be grateful for God's action that supports the, the, the natural goodness that this person is living. We have not yet, however, answered our question completely. What about the prophet Isaiah with his indictment of human goodness claiming the, this, this, this disorder? What about the whole gospel with its call to repentance? What goodness is still lacking? So to approach this question, we're going to look at levels or aspects of created goodness and then human goodness. So I want to mention three levels of goodness proper to a created being. This is also from Aquinas. Okay, here's our squash plant. So when St. Thomas looks at the goodness in a being, he recognizes these three levels of goodness. In God, they're all one and unified, but we're going to look at them as they are in created being, right? We'll look at the squash plant and then at, at a human person. So 
in the squash plant. First of all, this basic level ontological goodness that it exists, right? There is a basic level of goodness to the existence of the squash plant. It's here contributing to my garden, the ecosystem, the universe, my Thanksgiving decorations, etc. right? Then there's a second level of goodness, attaining its appropriate perfections or strength that the squash adds to its being, or it's, as its being unfolds, it acquires the strength or perfections it needs, right? In the case of this plant, as it grows from a seed, it needs to create chlorophyll. It needs to grow strong stems. It needs to grow a lot of leaves, a lot of flowers, right? If you were growing a garden and you had this squash plant and it, it grew one leaf and then it grew a flower and the flower fell off and it wasn't really doing well, you'd sort of say, it's not a very good squash plant. It's, when you're, you're speaking about this level of goodness, it exists, but it's lacking in attaining those perfections or strengths that makes it good as a plant. That other plant over there, that one's doing better. The third level of goodness means attaining a goal or an end. So we could say the goal of the squash plant is to reach maturity and produce some squash. So for a squash plant to be a good squash plant, it needs all these levels of squash goodness, natural goodness. Okay, so can the squash plant be good without God? That was not the question I was asked to answer, but we're going to answer it, right? No, it needs God to exist, but it doesn't need a knowledge of God or a relationship with God to be a good natural squash plant and attain its natural goal. Okay, now let's move over to the human person. And we're going to look at the human person on the level of nature here, okay? So we'll go through this later with the human person looking at our supernatural call. Okay, so on the natural level, the first level of goodness is the same existence. There is a basic goodness or dignity to human existence that cannot be lost, right? Expounding on that is another, another whole talk. But just sort of, I want to, want to put that out there, right? On the second level, on the natural level, we have natural virtue. Those virtues are those things which make a man a good man, not a good farmer or electrician or a card player. Those are skills that make his action or product good, but that make him good as a man. The virtues have to do with the mind grasping rationally what human flourishing in the individual and in a community is and the actions, emotions, and will moving towards attaining, choosing, and enacting this goodness. So natural virtue. Okay, the third level for human person attaining a goal. Do we have a natural goal? Again, to completely answer that whole other talk, but a Christian perspective is going to say we do not have a merely natural end. No natural goal is fully satisfying to the human person because we come into this world as a species and as an individual as called to eternal life. But there is an imperfect natural end. St. Thomas will talk about the imperfect happiness attainable in this life in his um, Prima Secundae. There are certain natural goods and activities that fulfill the human person to some extent, right? We have the nature of a rational being who lives in society. So to know the truth, to understand the world around us, to participate in the good of society, to raise a family are these human ends which can be attained in this life. Okay, so having, having listed this, I wanna go back to our question. Can we attain these natural levels of goodness without God's supernatural grace? So I'm, I'm 
focusing the question a little bit. Okay. And I'm going to give you two answers here. Yes and no. Partial yes. We'll start with the positive, right? So, and, and this, I find this surprises people sometimes. So this is worth thinking about, right? A partial yes. So going to those levels, obviously we can exist without being in a supernatural graced state of friendship with God, right? This is clear. Or if someone sinned seriously and turned away from God, they would stop existing, right? Judas betrays Jesus. He still exists, right? When people don't sort of you know, begin to exist when they're baptized or enter into a relationship with God, they exist before then, right? So obviously we can have this level of existence without a living a life of supernatural friendship with God. The second level, the level of virtue is trickier, right? We have to say yes and no very carefully here. So on the second level, we can attain some natural virtue and do some naturally good actions without supernatural friendship with God. And this sometimes shocks people, but, but give, it, give it a listen, right? You probably know someone in your life like Bob who has rejected a supernatural relationship with God, but who has acquired some naturally good character traits that enable him to do some natural good things consistently, right? Our imaginary friend Bob has a habit of being helpful to his neighbor and patient with his son. In the first part of the second part of his Summa, question 109, Aquinas says that even after original sin, man can, quote, work some particular good so as to build dwellings, plant vineyards, and this like. That's why I have an image of a bridge here, right? If that bridge supports the good of the community, it's a naturally good thing. Building a bridge, especially if you're working with a crew, requires skill, but also some level of moral virtue, right? Some temperance, some sobriety. You're going to fall off the bridge and not survive making the bridge, right? Um, probably some courage, at least to build something like this, right? On this, this edge of this precipice here. Or perhaps perseverance to deal with the sore muscles and the long days of work. Temperance, courage, and perseverance are moral virtues which to some extent can be attained by moral human practice, right? I also have a picture of a child here. Now imagine this child is a daughter of some mafia boss or someone. Um, okay, why am I choosing this? Sort of randomly choosing the example of someone who, who is really not in friendship with God, right? That's something we can, all agree, we can usually all agree on. Um, so someone living by violence or corruption, but the mafia boss shows affection to his daughter and he's packed her lunch for school. He's, you know, doing many terrible things in his life, but has some sense of justice towards his daughter. He's exercising justice in a limited sense, providing her with the food, which is his responsibility to do as a father. Again, this is a stock image, not actually some, you know, secret picture of mafia daughter, right? Um, okay, so Aquinas' judgment that some natural good can be done by the human person in the state of original sin who is not in friendship with God he bases this judgment on his understanding of the state of human nature after sin. By original sin, human nature is disordered, but does not become totally corrupt in Catholic theology. Um, it's damaged, but not totally corrupted. There's this possibility of practicing some limited human and moral goodness. 
In Aquinas' understanding, the moral virtues have to do with rightly ordered attitudes and actions, primarily towards created goods. They are deepened by practice. For example, temperance in regard to food concerns forming one's desires for food to fit with what is reasonably known to be healthy for you. The temperate person eats a healthy, moderate meal, and by doing this repeatedly, forms his appetites to desire such a healthy, moderate meal. Right? You've probably seen testimonies on like commercials for diets or something, right? I followed this meal plan for five weeks and now I don't want to do anything else, right? Not if it's a crazy fad diet, but something balanced, right? The trustworthy person has formed his will to follow through with his obligations and promises. He forms his attitude through recognizing and choosing to fulfill these obligations and promises. When he does it consistently, he forms these good moral strength of character. It would be ridiculous to say we need God's revelation to know what a healthy meal is or what it means to fulfill a promise or to fail to recognize that people through repeated actions are able to truly establish these habits in themselves. So some level of natural moral virtue is attainable without the supernatural help of God's grace. Okay, third level. Can someone attain some of the human imperfect ends without God? The answer is yes. He can grasp some human goods. Turning back to Bob, Bob can know some truths. Maybe he's a great mathematician. A person can participate in society, can form a family, attain some good natural human ends. This affirmation of the natural good fits with the Western philosophical tradition, right? If Trinity is a liberal arts school, those of you, you probably have some familiarity with Plato and Aristotle if you've gone through those courses here, right? Hundreds of years before Christ, the Greek philosopher Plato talked about the virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude in his Republic. Aristotle, a generation later, mentioned many of these virtues in his Nicomachean Ethics and discussed how they are formed by repeated action. This actually even fits with St. Augustine's thought. St. Augustine is often very pessimistic about the human ability to do good. But in his City of God, Book 5, Chapter 12, Augustine recognizes and praises the courage of the Romans who built the Roman Empire, even while criticizing their pride and some of the injustice that building the empire required. So there's a, a partial yes of the goodness that can be achieved in this life by someone who does not have God's supernatural friendship. Okay, but... Right? There's another answer, too. We have a partial no, right? Even on the natural level, there's a difficulty. Okay. So as I said, Aquinas accepts a Christian teaching of original sin. This means that human history began in a chosen rejection of God, which has resulted in a break or imbalance ever since. So while someone without God can develop some natural virtue— to consistently and heroically choose a good in a broken world cannot be done without the help of God's supernatural grace. In the same question I quoted above, where Aquinas affirms that some good can be done without God's help, he also says that fallen human nature, quote, cannot do all the good natural to it so as to fall short in nothing. So there's a, a falling short even in natural virtue because of this sickness of original sin that's going to affect different people, manifest in their life and experience in different ways. He compares human nature after sin to a sick man. The sick man can make some movements. 
He can eat, walk across the room carefully, do some good actions, build a bridge apparently. But you know, a sick person can't do everything. A sick person can't run a 5K or play football, right? So without the help of God's grace, some natural virtue can be developed, but it's going to be weak at certain points. The motivation for virtue is going to snap at certain points. If we, all if we are all just going to die, why not cheat a little bit when I can? Ultimately, why will it matter? The strength to do good may fail under the burden of what seems to be pointless evil in the world. So following Aquinas' understanding, we could say that our imaginary neighbor, Bob, can help his son with math, but it's going to be very, very difficult, probably impossible for him to be a good father in all ways without God's help, God's supernatural help. Maybe he's going to struggle with anger or fall short in being there for his son when he is sick. In any case, he's going to fail in forming his son to seek those ultimate questions about human, the human um, ultimate final end. He's going to be wounded in some way by the imperfect people who raised him. The daily day in and day out of being a good person is going to elude him at some point, at least according to Aquinas. Consistently doing the human good is very difficult. That's why I have this image of broken glass here. Bits of it are clear, bits of it are, are, are doing well, but there's also a, a brokenness and a weakness there as well, right? Damaged human nature without God's supernatural grace can only do a limited and imperfect good. Although some people seem to do better at this than others, right? Okay, and then there's a second point. Even when someone has a certain real, noble, natural, moral virtue, while it is real goodness, it is imperfect goodness. When St. Augustine talks about the natural courage of the Romans, he still calls this courage imperfect. Roman courage was flawed because it treated the city of Rome as the highest good. This is false. It isn't. Thus, Roman courage did not order Romans to the true supernatural good of knowing and loving God, or even a natural, completely full worship of God. It involved a certain blindness. The Romans used their imperfect goodness to make Rome great, but not to seek the true end of human life. We are transcendent beings, not totally summed up by this world. There is a further truth, a supernatural one to be found. And only this worldly goodness is a clo involves closing your eyes to the calling to what is greater. Right? No one lives a purely natural life with no invitation to the supernatural. Someone who's trying to do that, there's a, a saying no to God, a closing your eyes to that further horizon. So any purely this worldly good is a partial and disordered sort of goodness, particularly prone to snap in moments when our finitude and death come before our eyes. Often elderly people who've lived a life without God, there's, there's, there can be real pain as they grow older and sort of look towards the end of their life. Which takes us to the level of the supernatural, right? Continuing on. In Aquinas' understanding, the grace of God is essential for salvation. So this is another question people sometimes ask. Well, my friend, or like Bob, who doesn't know God, but they're a good person. So will they be saved? Is that enough for salvation, right? And it's important to recognize in St. Thomas's thought that salvation is knowing and loving God. Salvation is not God just sort of saying, you're a good person, so I won't punish you. It's sharing that supernatural life of God, right? John 17, 4. This is eternal life, 
to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not merely getting to heaven, it's having one's heart and mind elevated to know and to love God, which means the very hard teaching that natural virtue and goodness is not enough for salvation. Natural goodness and virtue have natural rewards in St. Thomas Aquinas' thought, right? They, they do have rewards, but natural rewards, right? If a man is temperate, not drunk, and responsible towards his family, he has a natural reward of sobriety and a better family life. If a man is trustworthy, he receives a natural good and reward of being trusted and forming strong bonds with others. St. Augustine actually hypothesized that one of the reasons why the Romans were so successful in forming their empire was their natural virtue of courage. And that in a sense was naturally had the natural consequence of overcoming their enemies. But for that goodness to be profitable to salvation, it needs to be elevated by the grace of the Holy Spirit so the person loves God for his own sake and desires eternal life, right? Knows and desires eternal life. In another way, we could simply say eternal life is essentially supernatural. And that sort of goodness, which orders one's actions for the sake of the love of God, is only possible with the supernatural help of God. It seems to me that this is the perspective that scripture takes when it condemns externally good deeds, which are tainted by being done for a merely human end. Right? We can go back to Isaiah here. We've all become like one who is unclean. Our righteous deeds are like rags. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. This recognizes the um, imperfect and ethereal, the non-lasting nature of merely naturally good actions and this recognition that they're also damaged by this weakness of original sin at the heart of the human person. It is at this level that someone who has attained real human virtue still needs to hear the gospel proclamation of Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These prophetic texts speak to the flimsy and imperfect nature of purely human goodness, although they don't necessarily take away from the fact that there is real natural goodness. Okay, so let us revisit our chart, this time including supernatural goodness. And we're, we're drawing to the end here. So we can talk about the existence of a sharing in God's supernatural life, right? This first level. For God's healing and love to exist in our hearts, 2 Peter 1.4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need. Through him, he has given us his precious and magnificent promises so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Right, this basic level of supernatural life, being partakers of the divine nature, God's indwelling spirit, God's grace, elevating our hearts and minds to know and love God. The second level on the supernatural level would be receiving the infused theological virtues. Right? In Aquinas' teaching, the Holy Spirit gives us the gifts of faith, hope, and love through which we believe what God has revealed and truly love and trust God. We exercise these virtues in union with God with the help of the Holy Spirit. Our moral virtues are also strengthened and changed by the infusion of supernatural grace. For example, someone practicing temperance as influenced by faith and charity does not only think about what is good to keep his body healthy, but understands his body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's going to be motivated in his temperance by a deeper respect for himself. His motive is also going to be deepened because he wants to be healthy 
to honor God and serve him, not only to have a healthy body so that he can, you know, get good grades and, and you know, do the activities he wants to do. This added supernatural level strengthens and deepens the action of moral virtue. So we have this, this infusion of God's grace, but it's important to notice here that this, the supernatural level of moral virtue functions along with our practiced moral virtue. To practice moral virtue with ease, we need to form our natural moral virtues by repeated practice, which is, which is one of the reasons why someone even living a supernatural Christian life can't ignore that level of natural virtue. For moral virtue to become easy, we need to practice it and God's grace, with the help of the infused virtues, we're able to supernaturalize it, deepen our motivation. But we still need that, that practiced ease. And then, of course, the third level, the goal, the supernatural goal, is union with God by faith and love in this life and supernaturally in, in heaven, right? So what does God's grace add to a virtuous life? right? We want to recognize the reality of natural moral virtue, natural human virtue, but we also want to recognize that we want to live moral virtue with the help of God's supernatural grace, right? God's grace gives us acceptance of God's revelation, a supernatural goal to share in God's life. I could go into this a lot more, but you have a talk on sharing the indwelling life and love of the Trinity coming up, so I'm sort of purposefully moving towards that, take, take that next talk as sort of fleshing out this aspect of this reality of which I'm speaking, right? God's grace adds to a life of natural virtue, the help of the Holy Spirit, faith, hope, and love, the, the theological virtues, as well as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, further motivation and help in living the natural virtues, and also, of course, forgiveness of sins. So, to conclude and to leave time for questions, because I've laid out a lot of different topics and ideas here, and I'm looking forward to discussing them a little bit. In conclusion, I want to return to Bob the Friendly Skeptic and the prophet Isaiah. And this time, I want to point out that Bob is looking towards Isaiah, and perhaps Isaiah is addressing his message towards Bob, right? Bob's grasp of some limited natural goodness can make him more able and ready to be open to the grace of God and to hear the words of the prophet. He might be ready for God's grace, right? It seems Isaiah, here again, is preaching with Tubab, warning him that without God, his human goodness is imperfect at best and will fall short in many ways. I also want to return to the very first reason I gave for being interested in this question. Can we be good without God alone? Because we want to understand goodness better, right? Sometimes people assume that God's grace makes life easy and simple. I teach seminarians, and there can be the temptation for them to think, well, once I get the grace of holy orders, this is all going to be easy, which is not true, right? God's grace given with the sacrament makes those supernatural actions possible, gives us help, but doesn't make them easy. The men in seminary still need to form those natural moral virtues so that they'll be able to accept and cooperate with and do the actions um, for a supernatural motive that God's grace makes possible. And it's, it's dangerous when people forget about the need for this practice of the natural virtues, right? They can fall into despair about the genuineness of their relationship with God when they find temperance, justice, patience, or sobriety still require real effort. 
to understand natural goodness, we need to understand that even this level connects to God and reflects him, yet we do need to understand that it's imperfect and flawed. To understand the Christian life, as I said, we need to understand not only God's grace, but the human nature on which it, which it builds. We need to recognize and appreciate and thank God for the reality of natural human moral virtue while further ordering it towards the supernatural with the help of God. And here we end. So.